This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host. What is the mission of the Office of National Coordinator for Health IT? How is the office transforming the adoption and use of health information technology? What are the critical opportunities in a digital health system? And how has the pandemic impacted these efforts? I'll explore these questions and so much more with a very special guest, Dr. Donald Rucker, National Coordinator for Health IT with the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Dr. Rucker, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Yeah, Michael, thank you for inviting. So uh, before we delve in, I'd like to get an overview of the history and mission of the Office of National Coordinator for Health IT. How has its mission and operations evolved since its inception? Yeah, so it, this started out um, in 2004 under... President Bush and and uh, with the first national coordinator David Brailer, really um, out of the realization that um, a lot of clinical care was not really using electronic medical records, so the office really was started as a location, you know, in the government to encourage electronic medical records was the initial work, and then over time. It became more and more formalized, a larger budget, uh, meaningful use dollars to where it is today. So the Office of the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology, we are what is called a staff division of the Department of Health and Human Services. So we're one of the smaller divisions, obviously, of Health and Human Services compared with the very large CMS division and then other um, pretty large divisions like the FDA, CDC. Basically, we're part of Health and Human Services. What's interesting about ONC is we do have an interesting mix where we both encourage technology, including with a lot of work harmonizing standards to get um, these systems to talk to each other. And then we also have a regulatory component, component with rulemaking and a electronic health record certification process, which then becomes a precondition for um, some of the CMS payment streams. Now, doctor, I'd like to focus more on your specific responsibilities as the National Coordinator for Health IT. What are your uh, duties and areas under your purview? And more interestingly, how do you support the overall mission of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services? The overall mission of HHS is obviously um, amongst, you know, there are a number of missions, but on the 
healthcare side, if you will, the overall mission is, is right in the name, Department of Health and Human Services. It is to support health and related human services. So part of that is to give as much support to making those activities supported by modern computing, right? So that includes many things, it includes big enterprise systems with um, application programming interface standards so they can talk to each other. It includes opening up electronic health records with a application programming interfaces so patients can direct their smartphone. They log on with their provider provided passwords and security. They can get their medical record or parts they select on their smartphone. So we do those things. We do a lot of work with health information exchanges, which are the state and um, local exchanges that um, allow providers to share information. We're building those out. They've turned out to be a very, very valuable source of information on COVID. A lot of the authority that we're talking about, just talked about, comes from Congress's 2016-21st uh, Century Cures Act. There's a big section on interoperability there. So that gives us, um, you know, the legislative uh, mandate and requirement, actually, to um, initiate a lot of those activities or to further them. That's excellent. So, Doctor, you know, regarding your responsibilities and duties, what are the top, say, three challenges you face in your current position? And more importantly, how have you sought to address these challenges? I've been doing electronic medical record work in one way or another since finishing my residency in 1984. So I uh, decided I wanted to make um, healthcare computerized and instead of going into practice or fellowship the way every other person in my residency did, I decided to um, get a uh, master's degree in medical computer science as well as an MBA. Was lucky enough to do both of those at Stanford. And so I've been at this a long time. I think if you look at the challenges, we've come a long, long way. We now have the networks, we have the bandwidth, we have electronic data. We still have a payment system that doesn't really incent people to share, truth be told. Um, you know, we incent big oligopoly delivery systems that can become price setters to payers um, as our, you know, number one incentive in the way we pay for care in the United States. Um, and that's how it's been going on for the last 50 years in various ways, large and small. The challenges, um, I think, are, you know, there are a couple. One is just the work on standards, the, the modern FHIR, Fast Healthcare Interoperability Resource, that builds on broader computing standards around RESTful application programming interfaces and JavaScript object notation representations of data gives us a um, very powerful new framework that we and many, many other folks are starting to leverage. So that's one area with a lot of work. Uh, the rulemaking, um, as I alluded to, the Cures Act uh, includes prohibitions against information blocking and uh, components of application programming interface without special effort. 
So in order to do those in our rule that we have just re released the final version of a couple months ago, and you can see all of this at healthit.gov. We have all kinds of infographics and cheat sheets and stuff so you get a flavor of that. You know, we have to balance a lot of different interests. We have to make sure there are economic incentives for people to innovate with these new technologies, both for the large established players as well as to create an environment for startup. A lot of folks, there's some companies uh, lobbying the hill actively to prevent any kind of competition from apps and healthcare. It's often labeled as protecting the patient or you know, protecting providers, but um, that is the, the goal. So we have to balance those with APIs. When you say standard-based API, you have to have something that makes sense economically to build, but yet is affordable and also gets patients into the game. So a lot of work there. So I would say, um, and then the various health information exchanges, they have some great opportunities helping assist those. So I would say the big areas are working on standards, building the regulatory infrastructure to allow true market competition in healthcare through the app economy, really empowering patients, right? And what does empowering patient means? It means patients have apps where they can get the price and the information on the care, the product, if you will, building that infrastructure. Um, those are probably the biggest challenges. Excellent. Uh, thank you, doctor. So we are currently still in the midst of a uh, COVID-19 pandemic. And I was wondering, how has the department's response to the pandemic impacted the work of your office? And what role, if any, has your office played in the department's response and efforts in the pandemic? Yeah, there, so um, obviously, you know, in a funny kind of way, it would have been ideal if this rule and the law had been, you know, enacted three years earlier so that um, everybody would have these APIs as we move to telehealth. And, and uh, but, you know, that's not the history of it. We're doing a number of different things. One area I think that's, um, and some of this are just, you know, infrastructure and advice to other agencies on, on some of the many IT issues that come up. One particular area where we're working, it, the health information exchanges, so the state local health information exchanges get a lot of information and not just from classic EMR sources. So we're seeing the opportunity for them to start replacing um, and augmenting a lot of the mandated reporting on things like ICU beds. Um, and the power there is that patient data that the HAEs have, it's coming from multiple sources. So you might have some information from a reference lab or uh, you know, a pop-up testing facility that then can be combined with health information exchange ability to do master patient index matching, data deduplication, um, data normalization. To, and because that is still identified data, so it hasn't been de-identified, you need that type of data to answer some of the really critical clinical questions. So for example, a mandated reporting might be, tell us how many COVID tests you did today, positive and negative. But you may also want to know, what's the time duration when 
patients in the shape of the curve when patients go from a positive test to a negative test? Or how long does it take? What's the range it takes from a positive test to showing signs of immunity? Are people getting reinfected? You know, those types of relationships over time, the clinicians will, would call this longitudinal data. That is really, I think, that next frontier in fighting COVID. Um, and so we're doing a lot of infrastructure work there. There's some related things such as split learning algorithms where the health information exchange has one part of the data then machine learning takes um, in a de-identified way can do big data analytics on that. There's some interesting things going on. So, Doctor, given your background in the private sector, health, being a physician currently now in public service as the National Coordinator for Health IT, what are the characteristics of an effective leader, and are there specific leadership principles you follow? Well, I think some of it, honestly, is um, the golden rule. I mean, you know, some of this is not uh, is not rocket science, to be perfectly honest with you. I think some of it is um, an important part in, in these things because they're so abstract most people don't really like to think about computers and data and IT. It gives people a bit of a headache, um, truth be told. So trying to, um, as we're doing today, you know, provide the country with clarity on what the opportunities are, how to think about these things, um, I think is critical on the external leadership. Some of those same um, Areas of clarity are very important in internal leadership. Um, I have the advantage or disadvantage of having been at this for a long time. Um, and I've intentionally structured my career over the years to bring in a number of, of streams here. So fundamental knowledge of computer science, programming, algorithms. Most of my career of conflict of interest things sort of prevented in federal government, but up until now, I've been a fully practicing clinician in, you know, busy emergency departments, seeing a full range of sick patients. So I have that experience. Um, I obviously have a career in the private sector. Uh, so I think being able to bring in, and you know, a number of things in healthcare management as well. So being able to bring all of those different threads together, I think, is, is very helpful in coordinating different people's interests, different people's awareness. Um, and I think that coordination is, is both in the agency's name and um, I think the reason why we've been able to uh, get some very major things done um, here. What are some of the key benefits realized in a digital health system? We will ask Dr. Donald Rucker, National Coordinator for Health IT, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. 
The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Widner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Dr. Donald Rucker, National Coordinator for Health IT within the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. So, Dr. Rucker, before we delve into specific initiatives, what exactly is health information technology or health IT? And perhaps you could describe the key components that make up health IT and the benefits attributed to its adoption and use. On some level, gotten a bit off the rails, um, again, because of the very funny incentives that we put on, literally going back to World War II. We have over-incented versions of electronic medical records, the paper chart made electronic. My long-term vision of health information technology, and this has been the case since I was a resident before I even really touched a computer, if you will, is automation. What, what we really need to give the American public a fair deal is the level of automation around these, this service industry that we expect and get in almost every other service industry in our lives. Think of all the computerization to make airplanes fly, to book reservations, timetables. Think of all the back office computerization that your grocery store has shelves full of food for you. Think of all the automation to allow us to deposit a check on a smartphone. We really do not have that level of automation in healthcare. And I think it's automation from computers that really is the heart of what's going to get the American public a good, fair deal with price transparency, product transparency, and services they want, and preventative activities rather than the hodgepodge of very expensive, you know, acute care services that we've incented through a series of federal laws. Doctor, would you outline your strategic vision for your office? What are the key priorities for realizing this vision? And what principles perhaps shape and inform both your vision and strategy? My key priority, frankly, um, not a surprise as a political appointee of President Trump, and obviously that's been my philosophy my entire career, is market-based innovation, market-based accountability, market-based low prices, market-based consumer choice. All of these things um, require transparent, effective systems, networks. As a doc, I'm highly interested in burden reduction. We spend a vast amount of provider resources on goofy documentation. Um, We've cut some of that back. There's more work to be done there. Things like prior authorization, all kinds of -of out-of-process quality measures, all because we don't have the transparency into what we're getting in healthcare um, and market accountability. Um, I think modern technology has opened up many markets that have been closed. Um, You can find this 
throughout the banking world, the brokerage world, the airline world, the music world, the entertainment world, the printing world, the retail world, where barriers have come down um, and the public has um, an increased quality of life. That's the vision ONC is in the extraordinary position to do it. This administration has that, uh, you've heard, you know, obviously the president is highly empowered in transparency, uh, price and bringing care out to everybody. Just an announcement uh, recently on rural and telehealth. So it is really that vision of consumer empowerment on every aspect of care, consumer choice um, and transparency. That's, I think, the vision we have. You know, the health system right now is on an unsustainable path. Everybody said this for years, surprised it's still there. But, you know, the political will of the country to mismanage this large a part of the GDP, I think, is really cracking. And there's ultimately going to be a choice between do we put it back in a market economy or we de- do we put it into a very rigid, compartmentalized, frozen in time um, activity that is sadly the case with um, you know a number of the um, governmentally, purely governmentally mediated alternatives. I mean, truth be told, we're already paying for over half of healthcare in the U.S. through the government, so we're you know that's I think part of the problem, frankly. But that is the opportunity, and then we can deal with the equity issues totally on the side, the same way we deal with equity issues, for example, in food stamps, right? The government doesn't run the grocery stores. Um, We provide a fairly crisp straight from the taxpayer, you know, the treasury to the administration of food stamps. So there are some very fundamental rethinkings possible in healthcare ONC's little corner of the world is healthcare IT. And I think somewhat self-servingly, um, we at ONC think that um, that interoperability and standards and the prevention of information blocking are um, the absolute glue at the heart of, uh, of this vision, no matter how the politics of it play out. That's terrific, Doctor. So in addition to addressing challenges in healthcare and technology, what are the critical opportunities in a digital health system? Oh boy, there are a lot. I, w- I like to break that up into the consumer facing, right? So the patients and then into the delivery system and the provider facing. So on the consumer facing side, I mean, just the ability to have your medical record on your smartphone is going to be huge. Right now, the state of the art technology in the last couple of years was you can log on to a portal. I mean, we had one patient tell us, she, young woman with a very severe chronic illness, she had 23 separate portals that she had to log on to get her information. That's not a happy consumer state. So the ability, and this is going to get better as authentication gets better, um, but the ability to download your information from your provider, get that on your phone, is I think going to be very, very important. And I'm confident it is going to open up a consumer app economy, assuming some of the lobbyists who want to shut this down 
don't succeed in doing that. There's constant lobbying on the Hill to, quote, protect patients uh, from their data um, or to, uh, you know, mandate all kinds of costs for very specific business interests. But assuming that that doesn't happen, then I think there will be a vast app economy in healthcare. There are really several hundred thousand apps in healthcare. They just don't have any of your medical data to give you actual informed choices. They just give you generic things or with a handful of exceptions. So that is one big opportunity. And, you know, I mean, we know what the app economy does, you know, look at your smartphone. What's missing on your smartphone today is anything meaningful in health. Right. So if we can do that, that will be massive. You're starting to see early things like Apple's health kit. On the provider side, providers in America are hurting. They're inefficient. Um, they spend lots of time in tedious manual activities. They've had almost no benefit from automation anywhere in, in the space. Um, and so I believe modern networks, the Internet of Things will be very, very powerful in, you know, that Internet of Things is going to allow us to automate a lot of stuff in hospitals, a lot of things in patient homes, and you're already starting to see this in smartphones. So I think it's going to allow us to rethink how we provide healthcare, move a lot of this from late stage expensive acute care to much earlier stage care. And I think as these things happen, people will realize they have major choices on prevention of illness. I mean, for example, because of the stickiness in the system, most Americans aren't aware that for several hundred dollars, you can get yourself a cardiac CT angiogram if you have cardiac risk factors and know if you're going to get a heart attack in the next 10 years. You can actually look at the plaque in your heart and then you know, be able to treat that aggressively with high-dose statins, other medicines. Um, it's that level of insight that I think when consumers are in control is going to become much clearer. There are going to be business models. This is all going to be a much clearer world that people aren't even aware that they have choice points there, facing the consumer and facing the provider. So the use, doctor, of health information technology really must go beyond the sharing of electronic health information between healthcare providers and also the enabling administrative tasks associated with it. How can health IT be used to promote health and wellness? And what are some of the strategies to improve individual access to health information? Well, the Cures Act is a huge, um, that Congress passed almost unanimously, is a huge bill that um, gives uh, patients the right to their data. It, it just, you know, it gives patients the right to their data and, um, you know, and requires standardized APIs. So you can get your data. There are, are going to be different ways of getting it. You know, for example, if you have an iPhone, you can get it through um, Apple's Health Kit. Apps can access that data on your iPhone if you have that. There's a uh, group that um, is doing uh, very similar work on the um, Android platform. 
I believe Common Health, I believe is the name, that will allow Android users to get at their data. And, you know, I mean, most of these data volumes are pretty trivial to what any modern smartphone can handle. So I think that's the way a lot of that will work. That's great, doctor. What can be done to advance healthy and safe practices using health IT? Well, I think the main strategy, to be honest, is to unleash the creativity of American entrepreneurial energy and put, you know, put these APIs so that patients have choice and uh, more information and more options. That's the way, you know, almost every successful solution in American history has come from that kind of um, activity, Um, you know, that kind of creativity, that kind of inventiveness, that kind of thinking outside the box. I think so those will be, that's really where this should come from and, and well, you know, certainly come from where there's no reason to think healthcare is fundamentally that different from other sectors of the economy. It's just been very densely regulated to prevent that from happening, but um, I think this will throw it out um, in a, uh, you know, very, very empowering way in the next five to 10 years, roughly. So I think um, on safety, it's interesting. In healthcare, we've had a very big focus on outliers and errors. Obviously, we have a, you know, malpractice system that sort of in sense, looking for those things. Um, but we, our focus has been, honestly, not that, not a, not a really a modern focus. Our focus has been on outliers, right? You know, somebody did an error and somebody else did an error and then something bad happened. The way high-functioning systems work is not by focusing on outliers, but by focusing on rethinking the median, right, the main process, variance around the median has not been a concept in healthcare period. And so automation, of course, by definition does that. It can also handle a huge variety, but automation on some intrinsic level is about reducing the central variance in care. Um, And I think that's really very, very important. And when you look at the great some of the great productivity improvements in America that have transformed the American landscape, you can actually see the activity as a reduction in central variance. Let me throw out for your audience a couple of thought examples. This is, you know, homework kind of thing. So one of them, I'm going to throw out four examples where reduction of central variance was the absolute key business insight. The first was John D. Rockefeller. And what he did, he did a lot of other stuff that leaves much to be desired. But what he did at the core of his business was to guarantee that his kerosene would be 90% pure. Now, these days with modern engines and devices, you know, a petrochemical is only 90% pure would be a pretty crappy product. But back then, it was an improvement. In fact, it was so novel so unique, and his guarantee of that was so innovative that he called the company Standard Oil. 
you know, now we think standard means you didn't get the power windows. That's still possible in cars. I'm not sure. Back then, it meant that when you bought oil from Standard Oil, you met a standard, right? That was a novelty. That's why they could call the company Standard Oil. Maybe the next person was more on the manufacturing side was Henry Ford, who, though there were folks like Samuel Colt with interchangeable parts for pistols, but Ford really, with that assembly line approach, you can have any color you want as long as it's black, reduced variance and extraordinary reduction in costs so that his workers could have cars. Um, American healthcare, just as a reminder, is really not affordable for much of the country um, and is an economic drag of massive proportions. We've, the healthcare sector has soaked up essentially all middle class and lower class real economic growth in the United States for the last 30 years. And you parse out the numbers. Two other examples for safety and quality were central variants um, through, um, you know, process um, and, and automation have played, played a key part. One is more process than automation is McDonald's. So Ray Kroc made it so that you knew no matter where you were in the United States that, you know, what the hamburger cost or the cheeseburger and what was in it, that element of surprise from driving around, every diner was different. He removed that, right? Reduction of central variance as opposed to anything else. And then the final one, um, somewhat more modern, is FedEx, right? FedEx guaranteed overnight delivery or two-day delivery as the case may be. That was such a novelty that reduction of variance in when the package or the mail would arrive, that they were able to charge literally a hundredfold more for the service, right? If you think about in the, whenever the FedEx started, sort of 70s or early 80s, I forget now, the FedEx package cost roughly a hundred times more than a first class stamp. So people are willing to pay for that. So I think if we look at those activities, we look at the power of APIs, automation, Internet of Things, and healthcare, we have extraordinary opportunities to um, totally rethink safety and quality. What is being done to build a secure, data-driven healthcare ecosystem that accelerates research and innovation? We will ask Dr. Donald Rucker, National Coordinator for Health IT, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, 
Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Dr. Donald Rucker, National Coordinator for Health IT within the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. So, Dr. Rucker, technology and analytic advancements like machine learning and forecasting have the potential to transform patient care and improve health. What is being done to build a secure, data-driven health ecosystem that accelerates research and innovation? Yeah, um, we're doing a number of things with NIH on patients being able to share data, sync for science, sync for genes. So there's some very specific projects as well. Um, but I think from a big picture point of view, in the Cures Act, in our rule, um, that we're adopting the version four FHIR, again, F-H-I-R, what's called the bulk data standard, so the population level data standard. So now this is under classic HIPAA. It's not under the individual's right of access. It's under classic treatment payment operations HIPAA. So it requires a signed contract between payers and providers if, it's, if the analysis between payers and providers. If it's just within a provider, they can, of course, do it on their own. But it gives Firebase standards APIs so that the folks can actually get the data you need for big data in healthcare, right? Everybody's gone to seminars on big data, right? The dirty little secret of big data and healthcare is, in fact, there's very little big data. The, the most famous studies you've seen um, have, you know, probably the arguably the most famous one between Google um, and Stanford um, had two hospitals, UCSF and University of Chicago, um, you know, who combined a data set. That's, I mean, it's big data, certainly, but it's not big, big data. And so the ability to have data over multiple providers to really do a true insight, not just one mode of practice, one site of service, one ecosystem, is, I think, critical to any machine learning technique, any neural net technique, um, and we have put that, and that's in our final rule. It turns out from a computer science point of view, it's not a, a super huge thing to do. Most of the big EHR vendors already have fire APIs in some state of build for individual things. You're gonna see on the back end, for example, Microsoft has a fire server in Azure live as we speak to store data but we believe the other cloud vendors are not far behind. Um, so I think you're already um, seeing that um, substrate. Um, and again, that's based on ONC work. There is a consensus that it takes far too long for evidence from research findings to become embedded at the point of care. So Dr. Rucker, how can we accelerate the integration of knowledge at the point of care? There, I mean, there are a couple things. So. Um, I know there's a famous 17-year number that's quoted from one truly obscure informatics yearbook. Um, the person who wrote that, doesn't, I don't think, actually believe that. Um, you know, that was sort of a, a funky thing that's 
become a sort of a very, very popular statistic. We're doing, um, I mean, I think there are a number of things that are going on. Uh, first of all, we're working, um, in our charge, we're working with CMS on burden reduction. So providers actually have the time to, um, to expand their horizons here. That's honestly the first order of business. We're doing work, we've done work with, um, for example, CDC um, on um, decision support, um, some uh, technology called CDS hooks. Uh, so number of folks have involved in that, National Library of Medicine, I believe has been part of that. So there are a number of, of efforts there to make this um, more integrated. We're working with a number of the payers and providers on something called the Da Vinci Project that tries to get that information in. But a lot of it is going to come from standardized, readily accessible data. So what does the future hold in the area of advancing the use and expansion of health information technology and the rich data environment it's created? Uh, I, you know, I think there's, well, you know, and how much of this is thinking versus hoping. Um, but if we get the, the various things in place and they aren't stymied by the inertia of the current delivery system and an unwillingness to change, uh, I think we have an extraordinary opportunity to move healthcare back to something owned by patients, right? Um, we don't have that, you know, healthcare is unique. It's pretty much the only place where normal adults don't really have choice in their adult lives. Uh, and so the ability, you know, that, that you're the electronic medical record owner, um, for example, which I think will happen over time, is going to be huge. And then I think on the provider side, uh, again, we've had this incentive focus on our software efforts, um, our computer efforts are really around recreating the electronic medical record. Um, we've had really no automation, as I mentioned earlier. Um, we're the only industry that I'm aware of that has used computers to make more work for itself. I'm not aware of any other industry. I, um, maybe, maybe your audience is, but I'm not aware of any other industry that systematically used computers to make more work for itself. Um, so I think that automation and this sort of labor-intensive coordination of care. I was involved, I did a study a um, number of years ago looking at phone calls. And it turns out in a big institutional setting, inpatient, outpatient, um, in a place where there were um, roughly 10% of FTE time was spent on the phone, half those calls were under one minute um, and the median duration of those calls was 26 seconds, right? So what does that mean? A 26 second phone call is not a call about a discussion about patient care. That is a coordination call to communicate a status variable. You know, lab ready? is the bed ready? Where's the patient? Where's the stretcher? Where's the wheelchair? Uh, that type of manual process coordination um, is, I think, these days entirely possible to automate. 
And um, I'm optimistic over time that the, the software that runs our hospitals will be geared far more to process automation rather than um, recreating patient medical records in electronically. Dr. Donald Rucker, National Coordinator for Health IT, thanks again for your time today. But more importantly, I want to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Well, thank you very much, uh, Michael, and uh, thanks to the audience. Uh, everybody stay safe. Over the last decade, I've had the pleasure of interviewing three previous National Coordinators for Health IT. During that time, I've been able to see the government's efforts to evolve the use and adoption of health IT from its beginning in the Bush administration to its maturation during the Obama administration and to its acceleration over the last few years with the Trump administration. The Office of National Coordinator for Health IT was created in 2004 by executive order. It was initially mandated to provide a coordinating function across the federal government in helping to organize health information technology activities. At its inception, the office was fairly small, with limited resources, but with a unique important mission. Dr. David Blumenthal, the Obama administration's first national coordinator for health IT, tells us more. Health information technology is just a way of collecting and moving that information around. It's what I think of as the circulatory system for information. If you think of information as the lifeblood of medicine, health information technology is the heart and arteries of that information. And as a physician, only as good as your circulatory system, spending two and a half trillion dollars on medicine and health in this country, we should get a lot out of what we're purchasing. Dr. Blumenthal understood that while health IT offered much promise, there was a need for leadership, coordinated action, infrastructure incentives, and a common agreement for that promise to become reality. The passage of the Health Information Technology for Economic and Clinical Health Act of 2009, also known as HITECH, was part of that effort. It sought to transform the promise of health IT into a healthcare system built for the 21st century. Once again, then National Coordinator for Health IT, Dr. David Blumenthal, explains. Now, suddenly, the office was tasked with creating a nationwide interoperable health information system, and the language of the law and the president's discussion of health IT made it clear that there were very ambitious goals. This required that we look at the office and recreate it as a locus of action and leadership for a very ambitious project, ambitious by any governmental or non-governmental standard. To take a, a 300 plus million country that extends from the Bering Straits to Key West, uh, that it's as diverse as this country is with all the microcultures that it has, uh, with the variation in its health system from you know, rural Montana to downtown Chicago, it's a very, very big project, and uh, it really is a project of change management. So I, I had to, we had to take this office and change the office dramatically. The Health Care Act of 2009 introduced the term meaningful use to the health IT lexicon. One of the core and most powerful elements of the act is the concept of meaningful use. Mm -hmm. The only way that Medicare and Medicaid will give you those extra funds is if you can demonstrate to their satisfaction that you are using a computer in 
an electronic health record in a way that meets the regulatory requirements. By his own admission, Dr. David Blumenthal, National Coordinator for Health IT from 2009 to 2011, was not a technical person, but he believes that helped him. Uh, I'm not a technical person, so in, I think in some ways that's been an advantage. I, I don't get particularly involved in the technology. I'm here because I uh, care about reforming the health system uh, and helping patients. I can think of, I used an electronic health record for a decade as a physician, so I know what it's like to use it. I know what it feels like. I can speak with, I think, credibility and authority about how an electronic health record affects the practice of medicine because I've seen it affect my own practice. Uh, I've seen it make me a better doctor. So uh, I can speak to that and tell very specific stories about decisions it has improved and care it has improved, money it saved for me as an individual physician. Many physicians believe getting off paper, so to speak, is key to ensuring patient safety. I had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Farzad Mastashari, National Coordinator for Health IT, from 2011 to 2013, and he explains why this is so important. What we became aware of, and, and I think it's pretty compelling, is that even though the most important thing we can do for safety is to get off paper, <laughs> and, and that's pretty clear, and the IOM uh, and everyone else, I think, has affirmed that, that, that by far, moving to electronic health records is a lot safer than, than staying on paper. Uh, but that move, that transition, and also the environment you have with electronic health records can potentially introduce different challenges to patient safety. And that we need to even, just like, you know, vaccines, right? Even while vaccines, a vaccine that's, that's newly introduced has a potential of saving a lot of lives, we also want to be sure that we track and can understand any and improve any problems that can come from it. And what we said was, how big a problem is this? And what do we need to do to improve it? And the IOM came back and said, first of all, we really don't have good enough reporting of the safety events and analysis, most importantly, of reports that come in to be able to really answer that question. So the first thing is, we really need to improve the reporting of safety events. And by safety events, I think broadly, we have to think not only where, I don't know, there was some software miscoding that could produce, potentially introduce an error in certain situations, but the bigger issue of, if we're not preventing a hazard through the use of technology that could prevent it, that's an event too. And that's something that we need to take care of as well. So they recommended, they said, look, we don't think that this is something that's a good fit for the FDA, which is the other federal agency that does a lot of regulation around devices and under the Food and Drug Act. We think that this, is a, this isn't just about the technology, it's about the whole environment in a hospital or in a doctor's office of how it's implemented, the socio-technical, they called it, interactions, was there a configuration issue, is it a workflow issue, is it a data issue, uh, is it a culture issue, right? That it's more akin to safety in hospitals more broadly, separate and apart from the health IT piece of it. Uh, but you really need, there's some very specific things we need to do to improve that. And so, based on that, that report, we put out a, a surveillance and action plan, which says, let's use our existing authorities. 
the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality has authorities and has a program around voluntary patient safety organizations. By gosh, let's use that. Let's use patient safety organizations that give protections for liability from providers who report safety events, and let's use the data from those PSOs, let's analyze them centrally and learn from that. The CMS has authorities around surveys and certification of hospitals uh, with the Joint Commission that does surveys of safe conditions in hospitals. Let's add the health IT safety dimension to that. And we have a, uh, we're using, we're doing more training with our CMS colleagues. Let's use the authorities that ONC has through the certification program to require a user-centered design and quality management systems and, and so forth with the vendor space. But it's not just a government job. This is everyone needs to participate in this. And let's ask the vendors to step up and to do their part and to commit to never barring a provider from reporting a safety event, as many feared uh, some vendors were doing, of engaging with patient safety organizations in, in the reporting and mitigating and bringing that transparency to bear. Through the last decade, as the adoption and use of health IT expanded, it became evident to the federal government that its success rested on the seamless exchange of secure health data across all stakeholders. It is at the core of this effort, but critical barriers to achieving the goal of nationwide interoperability exists. Then National Coordinator for Health IT, Dr. Karen DeSalvo, who led the office from 2014 through 2016, tells us about her efforts in this area. We laid out a, a vision and a, and a work plan that had five areas that we thought would be necessary to tackle in order to achieve interoperability. And we wanted to get to a place where the that we reached a tipping point in data flow in the healthcare system within three years um, in a, a broader ecosystem that was um, the healthcare system, but was more inclusive of consumers and public health and others by six years, and then by 10 years, what we call learning health system, where um, information moved as seamlessly as it does in many other sectors of our life. Um, our work there is about st the standards and technology. So um, how do you, how are we going to collect and, and report out on things like systolic blood pressure or heart rate to make sure it's the same everywhere? How are we going to certify that products are doing that? What is the way that we're going to protect privacy and security and then how will we see that we have a business environment, a payment environment that supports a long-term sustainable infrastructure? Think about utilities or roads or railroads that require some money to pay for. And then the final area is the governance. How do you define the rules of the road and what happens when people violate them? So how do you decide whose data gets in, what kind of data gets in, and if somebody misuses the data for some purpose, what would be the consequences therein? I think the biggest challenge in all that, Michael, is um, the governance and policy piece. Mm -hmm. The privacy security pieces are hard, but there's so much best practice. The hardest part there is going to be alignment across the states. People may not know that there was a time when railroad gauges were not standardized, and so the rail line would end at the state line, and you'd have to move the cargo from one train to another because the, the rail tracks were not the same gauge. We want to fix all that at the state level, but it's the governance piece and how we're going to pay for it that we're in the, in the throes of working on and having some good conversations about who should be at that table. And I'll tell you why it's hard. Um, it's hard because we're still in this country thinking of health IT and interoperability as being 
for healthcare system. And so the tables that we have sat include payers and providers. There's very little consumer voice and this new internet of all the things in the ecosystem are not at the table. And so there's an imbalance about the problem we're trying to solve and what success looks like. So that that's the, I think that's our big conversation. The technology is going to come. According to former National Coordinator for Health IT, Dr. Karen DeSalvo, one thing is for sure. The evolution of health IT has been as much a project in social change as it's been a complex technology project. A couple of the national coordinators who preceded me understood that this was about culture and social change. Uh, Blumenthal, in particular, when he was designing the grant programs, uh, thought a lot about how regional extension centers and the Beacon Grants, for uh, as examples, were going to drive social change. Those are questions about responsibility and accountability. And the way we have structured health and healthcare in this country, there are big gaps in responsibility and accountability. The social change work is, and the culture change is, I, I would say, major challenge. I think there's an evolving conversation about privacy, about data. Big data is sexy and everybody wants to use it for all host of purposes. It is possible to merge data sets in such a way that um, that you can tell a lot of things about a person based on what they're buying on the internet or where they live, much less their health care. That can, that can be very helpful. There's also the potential it could be harmful. And some of the data that gets merged in with health data is, is from not, it's non-HIPAA covered. It doesn't fall under the privacy laws. And so we're, we're having this um, meshing of information about people. Thank you for joining us on this edition of the Business of Government Hour featuring a conversation with the current National Coordinator for Health IT, Dr. Donald Rucker, and ending our conversation in our show today with a brief exploration of the evolution of the federal government's efforts to expand the adoption and use of health IT. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government leadership and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at Podcast One, iTunes, or on your favorite podcast app, and as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan-Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more.